and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Dorn and in 2011, Padraig Tuma and I started 10 by 9 in the black box in Belfast. And we love it. You can find all our events and all the things you need to know about us and more at our website, 10by9.com. We'll stay on Zoom until it's safe to return to our home, but we're also keen to keep in touch with our new audiences across Ireland, Britain and further afield, so we'll keep you posted on any developments. All three stories in this podcast were told on Wednesday the 9th of December. The theme was Connections and we were part of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Festival. First up is a first-timer who joined us from his home in Austin, Texas. Here's Paul Normandin. The first time I had to stand in front of people and talk was for an undergraduate public speaking class at Texas A&M University. I was so very afraid. I found some comfort by talking about hugging. I had read books on it. I knew how to hug. And at the end of the speech, I asked everyone to stand and give each other a hug. When they actually did what I told them to do, I was beside myself. I I pestered the professor with questions all the way back to her office. And there she introduced me to the head of the department. The next day I was studying speech communication as my major. Years later, my girlfriend and I moved to the big city of Austin. We got married, bought a house, Then we filled it with two adopted dogs, two adopted cats, and one beautiful little adopted girl. Well over a decade went by. I worked as a super uptight project manager. Every day was scheduled weeks in advance. Nothing was unplanned, even the hugs. So many hugs. Daughter hugs, kitty hugs, doggy hugs, wake up hugs, go to bed hugs. I'm sorry you had a nightmare hugs. My love of hugs, my daughter, and the family my wife and I had made was complete. We had seen the signs along the way, yet we were completely unprepared for her break with reality at 19. My daughter was diagnosed with a severe mental illness. Soon after this break, she moved out of the house to live on the street. I was inconsolable and angry. I lived in constant fear the phone would ring with news of her death. Feelings would boil up in me unannounced, but they came like clockwork when I saw people on the street corners asking for money. I wanted to yell at them, go home, get help. I never told anyone and I lived in my cocoon of fear. I miss seeing, talking to and hugging my daughter. It took years to find her and convince her to self-commit to a mental facility. After dropping her at that facility, my, my soul was desolate. My feelings overwhelmed me often and I was not coping. I would randomly break into tears. I had trouble staying focused. Loved ones intervened and I got help. Part of that help came in the form of classes for improv comedy in downtown Austin. 10 minutes after coming in the door to my first class, I was laughing. I couldn't remember the last time I had laughed. At 48 years old, I was the oldest person in the room. 
In each class, the rules of improv were hammered into me over and over. Say yes, don't be afraid, just try. After each class, I hugged every person in the room. As classes went on, I hugged these new friends before and during class. I found this temporary reprieve from my fear in that little theater. Phone calls with my daughter ended with me losing sight of her potential. My dread that she would never leave the facility and my recriminations of every parenting decision I had ever made. And at night, I was re-energized by young people laughing and hugging. After one class, I was talking to a classmate on the street. A person experiencing homelessness interrupted our conversation to ask us for money. I lost my temper and yelled at the interrupter. When I looked back at my friend's face, I saw everything I needed to know. I was still so angry, so afraid, and so very broken. I was sitting in a bar after a class with a large group of students, some from different classes. These students were people I wanted to see succeed, people who are now my friends and all had such potential, potential I feared lost for my daughter. The conversation turned to, what were we going to do with our newfound improv skills? Each person had a plan. Some were gonna to go to Saturday Night Live in New York, some to Second City in Chicago, others to Hollywood to be a star. I was sure they could all do it. I was six months into my improv training, sitting at a table with my new friends, crying in fear that I had no answer to this question. I remembered why I was taking improv and I had zero expectations. These classes were the end for me. But in that moment, I indulged the premise. What would I do with my new improv skills of say yes? What would I do if I was no longer afraid and just tried? When it came around the table to me, I said, I wanna stand on a street corner with a sign that says free hugs. It got a huge laugh. When they realized I was serious and crying, everything changed. Everyone told me I could do that and how they would help. I was simultaneously afraid and so sure I had to do this. Within days, I was on a street corner in downtown Austin at 8 a.m. with a big poster that read, Free Hugs. My new best friend from improv met me there before I got out of my car. They told me they would be my first hug, but there was no way they were going to stand in the cold and hug strangers all day. I knew that was exactly what I was called to do. And each and every year since, I picked one day to stand and hug hundreds and sometimes thousands of strangers on that corner across the street from the improv theater. On the best days, my daughter, my wife, and my improv friends all join me. Thank you, Paul, for such a beautiful, heartwarming story. I hope you'll join us again at the Town by Nine mic soon. Later, Paul told me he has for years been sharing stories, but until Town by Nine, he'd never written them down. So get writing, Paul.
And if you want to see Paul tell that story, it's on our YouTube channel, along with all our previous Zoom events. Also, if you want to keep up with all things 10 by 9 wherever you are in the world, follow our social media feeds. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9 go along to the guidelines page on our website and get in touch. We are always looking for storytellers. Next up, with a very different story of connections, is Jane Searle, who told this from her home in Armagh. James noticed me for the first time when he was with his friends. Believe it or not, I used to be a fairly snazzy dresser in the 1980s with all the Madonna hair ribbons, leather jackets and high top jeans. And you young ones think you've invented them. I didn't look half bad. Anyway, James must have thought so because he asked his mate Paul, who knew me, for my number. That was May 1983. From across the road up Armagh's main street, I thought he looked pretty good. Blonde hair, nice jacket, good build. Thing was though, he was English. Paul said he had been in the army and loved it so much over here that he had transferred to the police and was based in Derry. Nah, I thought, not for me. Too far, too complicated, too dangerous. He didn't ring anyway. It was a hot summer and later that July when I was out jogging in my best Jane Fonda kit, headband and leg warmers included, Paul stopped me. Hey Jane, he said, you know James who fancied you? Well, He's been shot in Derry in the flats. Paralysed from the waist down, he is. And he's only 24. I was shocked for all kinds of reasons, but mostly because he was not much older than me and I thought, what a waste of a future. Can I drop him a card? I asked. Sure, Paul replied. He's at Stoke Mandeville Hospital in England. And so our connection began. 30 years before Facebook and dating apps, James and I communicated before we met. And it was good. I wrote to him about my secretarial course and my boring life in Armagh, and he wrote to me about his physio and his boring life in hospital. It was another three months before we actually met properly. He was transferred to hospital in Belfast, Turns out years of the troubles had made it one of the best rehabilitation centres for spinal injuries in the world. I was to meet him there one Wednesday afternoon. I was more than nervous. What if he didn't fancy me? What if I didn't fancy him? What if we had nothing to say to each other? I was scared to death I would be a disappointment. I needn't have worried. The taxi dropped me at the front of the hospital and I made my way down the long corridors to his room. He was sitting in his wheelchair, smaller and thinner than I remembered, but just as handsome. A quick hug hello eased the tension and we began chatting. There was a lot to say and we were getting so at ease with each other that I even dared to ask about the day that he was shot. Maybe you don't want to talk about it, I said awkwardly, but he was quick to reply, no, it's good to talk about it. And so I sat on the end of his hospital bed and listened to his extraordinary story. I was on one of the long corridors of the flats when the firing started, he began. I was hit almost immediately. Nothing prepares you for the shock and the cold and the fear. No bloody training is like the real thing. I thought I was going to die, 
and my biggest fear at that moment was that I was going to be alone. The bullets were whizzing across the buildings and bouncing off the walls. I was just waiting for the next one to finish me off. But then suddenly I became aware of someone taking my hand. He paused for a moment and then continued. An old lady was leaning over me, saying over and over again, you'll be all right, son, hang on. Turns out she lived in one of the flats and had crawled along the corridor on her belly to reach me. She was praying and holding her rosary beads. She reminded me of my granny back in London. She smelt of soap and Avon perfume. She even had similar slippers, those tartan booties with fluffy pom-poms. I remember those slippers and her penny. Anyway, she stayed with me till the shooting stopped and the ambulance came. I'll never forget her. She must have been so afraid and yet she faced it for me. I sat for a few moments in silence. No one had ever shared something so traumatic with me. And to be honest, I just didn't have any words to say back. This was real life, not an episode of Hill Street Blues. I was relieved when there was a knock at the door and someone else entered the room in a wheelchair. Its occupant looked a bit older than James, but clearly in for the same rehab and support. He looked straight at me and smiled. How you doing? He said in his broad Belfast accent. And then, not waiting for a reply, he turned his chair towards James. Sorry to interrupt you, mate, but I'm a bit stuck. I've got that funeral tomorrow and all my black socks have gone into the laundry. You haven't a pair I could borrow, have you? Help yourself, James replied and gestured towards a chest of drawers in the corner. Top drawer. Socks collected, he popped them on his knees and did a three-point turn in the limited space. Great, mate. I'll get them back to you on Friday. He winked at me and left. Who's that? I asked. What's his injury? That's Sean. Shot like me, but by the army. He has a bit more movement than I do, but we're much of a muchness, to be honest. He's off to the funeral of an IRA colleague shot by RUC in a field near the border. Crazy, isn't it? You're joking, I said, shaking my head in disbelief. And you two are sharing socks. The chair levels everything, he replied and shrugged his shoulders. James and I dated for a few months, often going out for dinner. He would pick me up in his fancy disability car with the roof opened like a DeLorean. He warned me that uncontrollable body spasms meant that he would sometimes just fart uncontrollably and that it was best if I had a heads up about that. We laughed and I desperately hoped it wouldn't happen in the restaurant, for his sake, not mine. We liked each other a lot, but James had to go back to London where he had family support and I was still studying. We promised to write and for a while we did, but the long distance thing just didn't work and we gradually lost touch. A year or so later, I moved to Bristol where I met my husband, David, and settled down. I used to wonder how James was getting on, but I had a new happy life and I hoped he did too. I often thought about if he regretted his connection with this sweet country and the permanent mark it had left on his life. One morning, while at home, while eating my breakfast and watching GMTV, I nearly choked on my toast. For there on the screen, 
the interviewer, Anne Diamond, was chatting to James. I had to look hard to check it was him, but there was no doubting that blonde hair and cheeky smile. So what is it that you're actually doing? She was asking. Well, I'm being strapped onto a bobsled with a guy behind me and we go down the track at speed. I can totally re-experience the fear and the unexpected, he was saying. And it was easy to see the passion in his eyes. I used to climb, he went on, but this is a different kind of adrenaline rush. Are you not afraid you'll hurt yourself more? Miss Diamond inquired. James smiled. Nope, he replied. I have nothing left to fear. And that's the sort of courage that gets you remembered 35 years on. Oh, thanks so much, Jane. You brilliantly told the story within the story. And we send our best to to James. As you know, Town by Nine is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. We really appreciate it. Now, if you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. Now, here's our third story. Now, we have a little bonus coming up afterwards, so stay on board for that. But first, here's Maria Mulliman. I never really felt a connection with my father's parents, Carl and Johanna. He, I remember, as patient and kind, and she, my grandmother, as austere, practical and distant. He emigrated from Germany in the late 1800s, destined for Ireland. She had grown up on a small tenant farm in Kilmacow in South Kilkenny. We didn't see enough of them to form a close bond. I was six when he died, 11 when she followed, and they and their story were pushed into my subconscious floating there and surfacing now and again in response to some memory or random event. And it was exactly that, a random event in 2014, that brought them abruptly to the surface. Over breakfast on a Sunday morning while visiting friends in Oldcastle in County Meath, I mentioned in passing that my grandfather had been interned by the British in the internment camp in Oldcastle during the First World War. This hung on the air for a moment and then the you're kidding and the that is amazing responses came. My friends wanted to know the story, but I didn't know much of the story. In fact, I knew only the bare bones. This was never a topic of conversation in the wider family. And now I get that. What happened to my father's family in 1914 was so traumatic and cataclysmic that when the family came back out the other side, it was probably easier to just move on with their lives. The community around Oldcastle, though, had no such ambivalence about this piece of their town's history. They had worked over years creating an archive to honour the memory and suffering of these hundreds of men from all over Ireland who were interned in the camp in their town during that war. The bare bones I knew consisted of a few scraps of information. I knew that my grandfather was woken by British soldiers and taken from his home without warning. I imagined the panic. I imagined children crying in terror. My grandmother helping to get things together that he might need, having no idea about how long he might be away. Him with no option but to leave his family and comply. I imagine the sense of shock in the silence after the door closed behind him. He was a German national living and working in Ireland and viewed by the British as a foreign alien who posed a potential threat at the start of World War I. The camp he was taken to in Oldcastle accommodated 600 plus internees, 
most from Germany, a few from Austria and Hungary. He was away from his family for five years, being transferred from Old Castle in 1918, when for security reasons, the British closed the camp, moving all internees to Nakaloo on the Isle of Man, now acknowledged as one of the cruelest internment camps in the British Isles. In late 2014, my friends contacted me about an event planned by the community in Oldcastle. It was taking place to commemorate the arrival of the first internees 100 years earlier and was planned for Sunday the 14th of December at two o'clock. The meeting point was the old railway station. I had no idea what to expect, but the draw was strong enough and going was a no-brainer. On arrival in Oldcastle and seeing the number of parked cars, it dawned on me that this was not a minor event. We joined the stream of people walking towards the meeting point up an unused road to the old railway station and onto what felt like a film set. Scattered throughout the gathering crowd were people dressed in the garb of 1914, a British army officer on horseback, four squaddies present with what I hope were replica guns, a donkey and cart at the front door of the original railway station and an old van playing German brass band music through a loudspeaker. I stood waiting in the cold for whatever was planned and felt as I stood there, a sense of solemnity, of gravity, of respect among the gathering of strangers. At two o'clock precisely to the holler command of the army officer, a group of male civilians dressed in suits, hats, big gabardine coats and scarves emerged from the station, nudged along by the soldiers towards the cart where they deposited their battered suitcases. The soldiers stepped up, marshalling the group of internees behind the cart as the slow procession departed the station. I, along with all of these other people, followed. It was a cold, quiet winter afternoon, and as I walked, literally in his footstep, I began really for the first time ever to absorb the hugeness of this event in my grandfather's life. He had left behind his four children and his wife, he being the only breadwinner, and the thoughts and feelings he must have experienced are difficult to imagine. I worked out as we walked that when he walked along this same road in 1914, there were no houses between the railway station and the town proper through which the procession passed, moving onward to the site of the camp. We came to a stop in a green surrounded now by houses where a local historian pointed out the boundaries of the camp, the locations of the six watchtowers. He told of an attorney shot dead while trying to escape. And as I stood and listened to his vivid description of life in the camp, I felt the spectre of my grandfather emerge more and more strongly. The final set piece of the day happened in a large hall above the library where I and a couple of hundred people squeezed into the space. The walls reflecting back to us the men and their lives filled with press cuttings and paintings and photographs and letters, their ghosts surrounded us. Male voice choirs have a knack of tapping into an emotional vein, I think. And so when the choir from Navan began their version of Silent Night in German, remaining in any way emotionally disconnected was impossible. Tears flowed down every face it seemed, including mine. The choir's learned repertoire for the day of German Christmas carols interspersed the proceedings that varied from readings of some of the saddest and most wretched letters to and from internees 
to correspondence from the British archives and the management of the camp and key decisions taken. The hard, cold facts told of the misery, the loneliness, the feelings of injustice and despair, of loss, of physical hardship. The event was coming to an end when there was an invitation for the relatives of any of the internees to say a few words if they'd like. It never occurred to me to include myself in that number. Strange, I know, but true. And as several people walked to the head of the room and bore witness to their relative, Dearmond, my partner, nudged me. And my old castle friends indicated with a forward nod of their heads that I should say something. I froze, my heart drumming, panic setting in. And when it seemed that the last person had spoken, I literally found myself on my feet, propelled, propelled forward and then turning to look at the room full of expectant faces. I opened my mouth to speak, having no notion of what was going to emerge. I said, I recall that I wanted to name my grandfather here on this day and I stated his name, Carl Ulema. Will you know that sensation when you feel tears welling up and when a loud internal voice shouts, don't, but it did no good, I couldn't stop, the tears came. And so through them, I told that my father was 10 months old, the youngest of four children when Carl was removed from his life and that he didn't see his father again for five more years. I told that Carl had come back home in 1919 and that he went on to live a good life. Strangely, like many of the internees, his skills as a chef were what brought him to Ireland. And so I told that he had become a renowned and recognized chef and that he was a prolific painter exhibiting in the RHA for 35 years on the trot. I do believe that his painting helped him in some way to survive the ordeal. I have a small and lovely little painting he did of a gaggle of geese in Nakaloo, and my sister has one of his bed in Old Castle, both painted on bits of wood for a canvas. But what stays with me most strongly from that day was that as the event was winding down, total strangers came to shake my hand. They seemed drawn to connect with someone who had a connection with one of the internees, their eyes saying what words could not convey. And then a woman approached, perhaps 15 or 20 years older than me, weeping as she leaned to hug me tightly. I don't know who she was. I will never meet her again. And I have since wondered about her and her story in relation to the camp. In that moment though, as she continued to hold me tightly and weep, the depth of that emotional connection to the camp, both of us for our own reasons, seemed utterly fathomless. Oh, Miriam, what a wonderful way to make a connection with a long gone relative. That was beautiful. Thank you. And what a way to bring history to life. And that is almost it from this podcast. Lately, we've invited people to stay on a chat on Zoom after the 10 by 9 just like we would in the black box. And it's been a great way to get to know people, storytellers and audience alike. So Patrick and I were chatting to, among others, Jane, who you heard on story two. And, well, there were a few revelations. I, I thought you were very hard on yourself. I can totally imagine you in the 80s in the, all the Madonna ribbons. and. I was the babe. Many <laughs> photos, Oh, yes, I should maybe see if I could hunt some out. I was really into the whole ribbons in the hair and, you know, the, <laughs> the curly hair and, oh, Lord. Yeah, it's a long time ago now. Did you ever get a perm? Oh, yes, everybody had to get a perm. 
Oh my god. Actually, I got my first perm in Paris, right? And um, I was a nanny in Paris and I had a boyfriend over here. And I went to be this nanny for two months in Paris. And I had the straightest hair, a bit like it is now, actually. And my French host was very glamorous. And she, um, the mom of the kids, and she kept saying to me, you don't do yourself any, well, that's, that's German. <laughs> she kept saying to me, I didn't do myself any favors and I should get a perm. So she paid for me to get a perm on this very fancy um, salon on the Champs-Elysees. Well, it was beautiful, but the problem is anybody's ever known that had a perm for the first time, your hair doesn't like it. So it liked it for the first day, but then it was awful. I was like a frizz bomb. And I, I, it was horrendous. I had no self-esteem for the rest of the time I was there. I wore hats and everything. And I had to actually find a hairdresser to go to, to get the hair done before I came back to see my boyfriend for the first time. <laughs> so it looked nice. <laughs> anyway, that's the story of my perms. <laughs> you have a theme, hairdos. Oh, that would be a good one. That yeah. would be, oh, there'd be a lot of Paul. That would be a good one. There was one summer when I was about 14 when I must have shot up in height over the summer and I had grown my hair a bit longer. You know, my hair was always kind of short and short, um, but I'd grown my hair a bit longer. And one of our neighbours, we I grew up in the country, one of our neighbours was over borrowing something and she's, uh, she and my mother always called each other, you know, Mrs. This and Mrs. That. And the neighbour said, Mrs. Otuma, isn't Padraig after her getting very tall and my God, his perm is just <laughs> lovely. <laughs> and my mother, I mean, I'm from, I mean, that's over 30 years ago now. Inevitably, she'll come up and she'll go, your perm's lovely. <laughs> Such lovely curls, Padraig. Lovely. Thanks for that. Thanks, too, to the Northern Ireland Human Rights Festival for inviting us to take part and to everyone who was part of the evening especially our storytellers. And just before we go, I'm going to ask a small favour. If you enjoy this podcast, could you please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your fix of 10 by 9 and give us a rating. And if you could, maybe leave a short review. We would be very grateful. It helps get us noticed. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran. So, blame me. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>